You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen one. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is Matt, and I am the associate pastor here at Reality Church of Stockton. I wanted to kind of clarify that up front because I know maybe some of you joined us during Advent and you were thinking to yourself, man, that Pastor Christian really did grow a beard in the last week. Got a little bit shorter, a little better looking though. Um, now, obviously, Pastor Christian here with us, he's doing the most today. He's, he's back to his first love, which is playing the guitar for us. Um, and he's still tall, beardless, and beautiful. Um, but he leads us week in and week out in the preaching of the word, and from time to time, we like to give him a little bit of respite um, as almost a thank you to him, because this is no easy task to do this every week. Um, so if you see him later this morning, please go out of your way and thank him for his service to our church. And I will go ahead and say that I will probably, by the end of the sermon, you ha- may have more reason to thank him than you came in with. I'd like to title this morning's sermon... Uh, The Spectacles of the Cross. The Spectacles of the Cross. Today, we find ourselves at the last Sunday of the year. It's the last Sunday of a decade. Uh, We've just finished up our Advent season. The year is coming to a close, but it's not quite over yet. Um, But it kind of feels over, right? Like Christmas happened. We're in this kind of annual already, not yet, of the year where the year's kind of done, Christmas is over, but the new one hasn't quite started. Maybe your house actually even looks a lot like the church building right now where we've taken down some of the Advent decorations, but not all of them. We're kind of caught in this little in-between. And this week, really every year, causes us to reflect and stop and think about the year that's gone on before us. We remember the good and the bad. We remember the peaks of the mountains and the lows and the depths of the valleys. Um, And this is an important time because what we believe, what we remember about what lies behind us will guide us into next week as we begin to think about what lies ahead. What we believe happened is going to point us toward what we believe is going to happen. But in order to do that, we need to make sure that we're able to actually see what's back there, which may sound weird, um, but we need to be able to see what's back there. You may have noticed, but I am one of the more than six in 10 Americans that needs to wear glasses to correct their vision. Um, That number actually goes up to more than seven in 10 if you include those that need to wear contacts. 
Um, my vision isn't terrible, but it's bad enough where my eyes have to just really strain to see what's out there. Everything's just a little blurry, and I end up getting a headache, and it's just really not worth it because I have to try so hard to see accurately. And to remember well, to look into the past, it's not 6 out of 10, it's not 7 out of 10. 10 out of 10 people need glasses. We need correction of our vision to see God miraculously working and providing for us. We need to see him providing for our deepest needs, and we need our vision corrected to do so. So this morning, we're going to put on our glasses and work through Psalm 105 together in three points. Uh, Miraculous memories, regular reality, and a holy hope. I decided to go away from the complete um, alliteration and just decided to do it within the points. So just a little change up for you guys. Yeah, I got one woohoo. So we'll start with miraculous memories, point number one. Um, Here we have to do a little bit of groundwork to unpack the text, but hopefully it's going to make the the later two points a little bit quicker for us. Um, But I want to start by just saying, what is a psalm? I realize that we're jumping into Psalm 105. I don't want to take that question for granted. We're not in a series on the psalms. Um, So let's start by defining what a psalm is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that, Now there is in the Holy Scriptures a book, which is distinguished from all other books of the Bible by the fact that it contains only prayers. The book is the Psalms. So the biblical book of the Psalms is a book of prayers written down and organized for us. They're prayers for us, for God's people, that we can look back and reflect on and pray ourselves. But they're not just prayers, they're also poetry. And to miss these two elements, we run the risk of missing each Psalm's true meaning. We have to take both elements into account when we're contemplating Psalms. C.S. Lewis wrote that the Psalms must be read as poems, as lyrics, with all the licenses and all the formalities, the hyperboles, the emotional, rather than logical connections, which are proper to lyric poetry. They must be read as poems if they are to be understood. No less than French must be read as French or English as English. Otherwise, we shall miss what is in them and think we see what is not. We will miss what is in them and think we see what's there, but it's really not. So our poetic prayer today is Psalm 105. Um, Like most poetry, there's a theme that runs through it. Um, Our theme is God's miraculous provision for his people. That's what Psalm 105 has at its heart. And and Psalm 105 actually is a a historical recounting of Israel's history. It it, it kind of picks up in the kind of early stages of Genesis and takes us through the stories of Numbers, but it is a poem, so it takes on those um, things that... Lewis called them the lyrics with all the licenses and all the formalities. It's not exactly like we remember history. Psalm 105 was likely written by King David. The first 15 verses are found in 1 Chronicles 16, right after the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem and placed in the tent that David had set aside for it. So we can't know for sure that it was him that wrote it, but more than likely. Our psalm, though we didn't the whole thing, because it's quite a long psalm, Um, But our psalm has a very call-and-response type of feel to it. Um, We're going to hit the big portions of it as we go through, but let's look at verses 1 through 5 to begin with, um, because verses 1 through 5 is actually full of a bunch of things that we're supposed to do. It starts with a bunch of imperatives. They're commands. God is telling us to do these things. So starting in verse 1, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. 
Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those that seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. So look at those imperatives. They're not necessarily commands that we might think of when we think about commands, but it's give thanks, call upon, make known, sing praises, rejoice, glory, seek. These are things that are normal for prayer, actually, as we kind of look throughout the whole Bible. This is a pretty normative pattern for us as we think about prayer. Think about the Lord's Prayer that we just read together. How does it open? Jesus teaches his disciples to pray with the framework of the Lord's Prayer, and he says it begins with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We enter into God's heavenly throne room with adoration and praise first. Hallowed be your name. Let your name be revered and set apart as holy. Let you be made much of. And so we look at the commands, and, and then they all kind of culminate in this, in this one command in verse 5, um, where we're told to remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments that he uttered. Remember. The Hebrew word translated, remember, not to get too technical on you, um, here, which is the same in verses 8 and 42, means exactly what you'd expect. It means remember. That was the technical part. It's very well translated. Um, but this word is typically used as a call to do something. It's meant to motivate thoughts and feelings and action. It's not meant as a call of just like, oh, Jimmy, you remember that time in high school? Oh, that was so cool. Back to normal life. Um, instead, it's meant to motivate us into action, to go do something. Our remembering is for the purpose of realignment with God's priorities. It's not simply to just leave us where we were. It's meant to motivate us back into God's will. But what is it that we're remembering? What is the psalmist remembering? And what are we called to do because of it? That's verses 7 through 44. Uh, the bulk of the psalm, this, the bulk of this we didn't read. Um, but it's a recounting of the wondrous things that God has done for his people. It's the history. It's the ways that he provided for him. This is the what to remember. This is a poetic recalling of how he provided for his people. We'll have to remember that. He makes, um, his provision is remembered through the ways that he makes and keeps his covenant with Abraham. Even though they were a small people, he allowed no one to oppress them as they traveled. He sends Joseph ahead to Egypt as a slave, but makes a real rags to riches story out of him. Um, he sent Moses to Israel in Egypt, brought the plagues about and brought them out of Egypt. And then he fed them through the wilderness, or he led them through the wilderness by a cloud and fire he fed them with quail and manna. He gave them water from a rock and delivered them land and possessions that they didn't work for. These are truly miraculous works of God. They're things that we look back on and when we think about miracles, these are the things that we think about. But remembering, again, is supposed to lead us into action and so that action is found in verse 45 where it says, keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord that they may keep his statutes, observe his laws, and praise the Lord. But we do these things because of what came before it. That's very important. Because we remembered his wondrous works and his miracles and his judgments, we then obey and praise. And this, too, is the biblical norm. Uh, it's, it's what we've come to know as the indicative imperative, right? The New Testament is full of this. Before we're called to do anything... Before God calls us to do something, he reminds, of, reminds us of who we are 
in him. And even maybe the most famous list that you can think of, the most famous list in history, um, ends in this way, right? Think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments do not start with, you shall have no other gods before me. That is the first commandment. The Ten Commandments start in Exodus 20, verse 2, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He reminds them that his mighty right arm redeemed them, that they are his chosen people, that he rescued them, he ransomed them, he brought them out. He is the Lord their God, and then he calls them into action. And everything that God commands us to do is the fitting response to remembering what he has done on our behalf. It's the fitting response to obey and praise because of who we are, because of what he's done. But this is where it kind of gets weird. If, you, if you're a Bible reader you, and if you're a Christian, then I hope that you're a Bible reader. That's a sermon for a different time. But you may be saying at this point, something seems a little off. This sounds fantastic at all, but that's not exactly how I remember the history books recording it. The poetry sounds great, but it's not what I remember in the history books, right? Psalm 105 makes everything sound idyllic. It's always perfect and heavenly. There were never any struggles or hurdles to faith. Israel as a people. They never had any problems. It makes it sound like life wasn't difficult because God was just pumping out the miracles like some sort of heavenly Oprah, just kind of kicking out the wonders and the miracles, like you get a miracle and you get a miracle. But that's not what the history books show us, right? That's not what the history books show us. In Genesis, for instance, Abraham didn't always act faithfully according to God's covenant promise. The psalmist really just kind of glosses over the story of Joseph as a, oh, he, he was sent ahead as a slave. But being sold as a slave, there's a little bit more to that. There's a little bit more that went into how he got to where he was and how he ended up at the top of Egypt. Early in Exodus, Moses struggled to see God's faithfulness in the task that he was given, and he kept trying to wiggle out of it with all these excuses. And this may be my favorite. In Numbers, Israel was given quail by God. We have to concede that. But it was after they complained about his provision over and over and over again, about this heavenly manna that was falling from the sky and landing on the ground in the exact portion that they needed every single day, except for they got double the portion on the day before the Sabbath, and they were just complaining about it, like, would you give us something else to eat? We want some quail. And the psalmist is missing the little bit about God striking them with a plague while the meat was, quote, yet between their teeth. He finally gave them what they wanted, and while the food was on their lips, God struck them with a plague. That's not in here. So the psalm leaves us in this place where, yes, we know what really happened, but it's recorded so miraculously that it seems distant and unreal, and how is this even applicable? This maybe was a prayer for someone else, we think, but if it's in God's word, then it's a prayer for us too. How does it apply to us? And so this leads us to our second point, regular reality. To most of us, last year wasn't bad. I mean, it wasn't great, but it it wasn't by any means miraculous. Okay, so we may be tempted, the most of us may be tempted to to not remember, to say that, you know, I got by this last year, it was okay. Um, I expect to get by and next year will be okay too. But what are we supposed to do? Like, am I supposed to contrive this remembrance or whatever? What am I supposed to do? And so let's go write one psalm to Psalm 106. And we'll want to heed the call of what it looks like when we don't remember. Because that's what Psalm 106 punctuates on. 
Psalm 106 verses 6 and 7 say, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea. So what we see here is to not consider God's wondrous works, to not remember God's works and promises and love is sin and wickedness and rebellion. To not acknowledge the fact that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. To not acknowledge the fact that he makes, he feeds the birds of the air, he clothes the lilies of the field, how much more does he not care for you? To not remember these things is sin and wickedness and rebellion. We need to remember. The call for all of us today is to remember the works that God has done. Remember how he provided. Remember the abundance of his steadfast love. But there's another group of us here today. It might not be the biggest group, but for those in this group, last year wasn't miraculous. Um, It wasn't even just okay. It was terrible. Last year was maybe the worst on record for you. And if you don't find yourself in this group this morning, um, I'm sure that you can imagine it. And I also don't want you to tune out because at some point suffering comes for all of us. And we need to be prepared in Christ to get through it. But for those in this group, you may be saying at this point, well, that's a cool story, preach. But my group or um, my, my, my year wasn't miraculous. It wasn't even okay. It was just downright awful. I feel as though God has abandoned me. It's not as if I'm having a hard time looking for miracles. It's that I don't even know where to look. I feel like I'm drowning in what's here. Maybe you've watched loved ones pass away over this last year or decade. Maybe you've been dealing with crushing anxiety or depression because you're trying to live up to these expectations that those around you have placed upon you, and you're realizing you can't, and it's weighing you down. Maybe you don't know where your next meal is coming from. Maybe you're months behind on rent, on bills, and you just have no idea how you're going to get caught up. Maybe last year was just awful, and it feels as though you've been abandoned. I'm here to tell you, if you're willing to hear it, that just because you couldn't see him in your last year, it doesn't mean that he wasn't there, and it also doesn't mean that he wasn't miraculously providing That may be a hard word for some who are in that to hear, but it's still true, and it doesn't mean that he hasn't, that he's left you. But in a certain way, this kind of only punctuates the problem that the text leaves us with, right? God's people endured some very real and difficult circumstances. They had some real terror in their life. They had some terrible years. And so why did the psalmist record God's provision in these times so wondrously, if they had some awful years as well. Friends, it's because it is wondrous. It's God's miraculous wonder that he provided Israel with food to eat while they grumbled the whole way. It's his miraculous wonder that he performed signs through Moses, a man who tried to wiggle out of it by making excuses. Oh, I'm not really good at public speaking. They're not going to believe me. And that he used him anyway. It's his miraculous wonder that Abraham, who seemed at many times to be faithless, just like us, 
If you go back and read the stories, you see, you, like you read one half of a chapter and you go like, man, Abraham, really balling out on his faith. And then like the later half, you're like, man, telling your wife to pretend that she's your sister. Like, this is kind of weird. But he was given such a great promise. It's, it's, his, it's God's miraculous wonder that he got the promise to begin with. And that promise is to us. When we remember rightly, the way the psalmist does here, we see that even in what felt like the worst of times, God was actively and miraculously providing for us. Even in our faithlessness, even in our grumbling, even in our pain, he's there. He's working all things together for your good. So, Saint, if you find yourself this morning in this place, in this difficult season of life, it may be actually of utmost importance for you to heed the call, to remember the wondrous works of God in your life. And let that lead you, let it propel you into a life of obedience and faith. Let it lead you into a greater and a deeper faith, not less faith. And that leads us to our third point, a holy hope. Now, if I stopped here, you'd have a 20-minute sermon. You'd be very happy with me. Um, But I'm not going to stop. Uh, If I stopped here, I'd send you out with a nice thing to go and do for the rest of your year. Remember God's working last year. Let, let, that, let that lead you to change this year. Oh, good. Resolution's done. Obedience and praise, that's what I'm supposed to do with next year. Thanks, preach. We'll move on. But you may be saying at this point, well, I still don't know how I'm supposed to do that. Like, you've told me that they've done it, and I don't get how I'm supposed to do it. Do I just go out and buy some Nikes and just do it? Or am I supposed to, what if I, what if I still can't see him there? What if I can't even see him working? Like, how am I supposed to recall? And so I'd argue that you can only see God's miraculous hand at work in the mundane and the difficult through the spectacles of the cross, through the glasses of the cross. Like, that's the only way that we can see him working. Like I said at the beginning, we, all of us, need our vision corrected by the cross so that we can see God's cosmic hand working all things together for our good and his glory through his covenant promise to us in Christ. That is how we can see him working. We have to look through the glasses of the cross. And that covenant promise is the glasses as well. That's how we enter into our memories, and that's how we leave our memories. We do them through the glasses of the cross. So you're asking, where do we see that? Well, you know what? I'm glad that you've asked. I've, think, I've thought about that quite a bit this week, and I would really like to share it with you. We see that in Psalm 105, verses 7 through 9. And then verse 42, we'll pick it up there. Verses 7 through 9. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. And then verse 42. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. Three times, three times, the word remember shows up in this psalm. But twice, the word is attributed to God, not us. Twice, it's attributed to him. And these two instances kind of bracket in the the bulk of the memories that we're supposed to take up. They they make these little brackets for the memories. Um, And the reason we find, the reason that we remember, is because God first remembered us. We remember because God remembered first. He remembered his covenant with Abraham. And that's what the psalmist leads into the memories with. So what is the covenant with Abraham? Well, we find it in Genesis 15. At the time, Abraham was called Abram. Um, 
And what we find here is that God promises to bless Abram and multiply his offspring so great that they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you a great reward. I'll prove it to you. Go outside, look up. It's dark. You can see the stars. If you can number them, that's how many offspring you're going to have. That's what I'm going to do for you. But deals like this back then weren't just made with a handshake. It wasn't just some sign on the dotted line and we get through it and you have my promise that I'm going to do it. Instead, these are made with covenants and covenants are made with blood. Um, all of you have probably, I would say most of us have probably been to a covenant ceremony because we've been to a wedding. But I would gather that the covenant ceremony didn't quite look like this. There was probably a little less blood. There maybe wasn't no blood, but there was probably less blood. But the covenant ceremony, so God instructs Abram to cut up some animals, cut them in half, tear them apart, place them on two sides. And what would happen at that time is that the two parties involved would walk through the pieces. So I can only imagine that it smells terrible. There's blood everywhere, and you've got these animal carcasses on both sides. And the parties would walk through both pieces, and what, what you'd be signifying as you're walking through the pieces is that you're saying, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain... Let me be made like these animals around me. Let me be torn to shreds. Let me be blood everywhere. Let it smell terrible. Um, and then the other party is kind of saying the same thing. But what's special about this covenant ceremony is that when it was dark, God came down and went between the pieces himself. And only him. Genesis 15 verses 17 and 18 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So this was God saying, if I don't hold my end of the bargain, let me be made like these animals around me. If I, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, let me be torn. Let me be ripped apart. But it was also him saying, if you don't hold your end of the bargain, let me be torn. Let me be made bloody. I'll take it. Centuries later, after God's covenant with Abraham, a man named Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. And what the Gospel of Matthew records for us is this. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. After being torn to shreds, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God become man, hung on the cross in the dark. God remembered his covenant, and it propelled him into action. He bore the punishment of the covenant. He bore the punishment that was due Abraham and his offspring. He bore our punishment on the cross so that we could be brought out of bondage to sin 
and we could have the great reward, reward that was promised to Abraham, that reward being him. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. God came down to us that we could get up to him, to bring us up to him. He was and is providing for your every need, and he will finish the good work that he began in you to sanctify you and bring you home into your heavenly and great reward because of the work that he has done with his mighty right arm. I'm reminded of, um, we we just finished the Advent season, obviously, and I'm reminded of a quote by J.I. Packer um, in his chapter in his book, Knowing God. He has a chapter called God Incarnate, and he has a quote in it that says, um, Jesus Christ, by becoming man, took the first steps down the path that would ultimately lead him to the cross. That Jesus Christ was born to die. This was his purpose. He didn't do this flippantly. This is why he came. And so what this allows us is it allows us to remember with confidence. We can enter into our remembering because we remember first the covenant made with us in Christ. And we can then look forward, come out of our memories and begin to look forward with hope because of the covenant made with us in Christ. Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the confidence that we have. It leads Paul to then later say, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the confidence that we can look forward with. We look through the spectacles of the cross. We can put on our glasses and see God's covenant remembered and kept. The psalmist remembered the Abrahamic covenant, but we remember the eternal covenant. We remember Christ dying for us raising for our victory. And we can have confidence that if he did not abandon us then, when it was so hard in the garden, on the cross, then he did not abandon us in our last year, and he will not abandon us in our next year. We can look back and see how he has provided for us everything that we need, down to the food in our bellies. Maybe you didn't have everything that you wanted last year. Maybe it didn't go exactly as you thought, but did you have enough to eat? Did you have enough roof over your head to get some sleep? Did you have enough friends in your life? This is God miraculously providing for you. And he deserves to be remembered for it. He deserves to be praised for it. And so through this, we can remember and then move ahead through the holy hope, the holy confident hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We can now fittingly respond with obedience and praise because we've remembered him. We've remembered his wondrous works to us. Would you pray with me?